We're grateful for this opportunity that you have given to us to study together. And I pray that you will bless and anoint this time, that you will be in full charge of my mouth, my mind, my heart, as we go through this incredible passage. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Last session, we saw that we are all born as a descendant of Adam. That means that we're born of the flesh, not born of the spirit. We're born dead in our spirits and doomed to die eternally separated from God, to die in our sin. We do not become sinners when we commit our first sin. We are sinners and that's why we commit sins. You don't have to teach a two-year-old to stomp his foot and say no and to say, I didn't do that. So it's built into us. We sin because we are born sinners. We're born with bodies and souls, and our soul is our mind, will, and emotions, but we're born dead in our spirits. So we're not fully functioning humans the way God created us to be. We were born owing a sin debt, and the wages of sin is death. That is eternal separation from God. The Bible says that, that that soul, that unsaved, lost soul, that soul that is dead in its spirit, is called, is, spends eternity in a place called hell. And that is a place where the absence of God and anything like God is, is just not there. And there's a consciousness of that absence of God in that place. God created hell for the devil and his angels. He didn't create it for people. But there are some people that being dead in our spirits, that we want to rebel against what God has for us and choose a way other than God's way. There are two ways. I can be a believer or I can be an unbeliever. There's nothing in between. Well, how do I escape from being in Adam? Jesus explained that to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. He said, you have to be born again. Yes, it is impossible to go back into your mother's womb to be born a second time. But you can be born again in a different way. You can be born in your spirit. How? How do you do that? by understanding that Jesus died on the cross to pay our sin debt. We're born with that debt, and Jesus died on the cross to pay that debt. I know that I'm a sinner, I know that I need a savior, and I know that Jesus is the one who can save me. Scripture tells us there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. So we look to Jesus, we look to his sacrifice on the cross, and we lay our lives down on that truth. When Jesus was dying on the cross, the last thing he said was, it is finished. Now understand, that didn't mean he was all done. That didn't mean that there was nothing else to do. Some scholars say it was a loud cry. That intrigues me because you think maybe he was shouting that the whole world would know that it is finished but it doesn't mean that he didn't have anything else to do. The word in the original language is tetelestai. 
tetelestai, which means paid in full. Paid in full. Only one word in Greek. But that's one of those situations where there is an ocean of meaning and a drop of language. Paid in full. Tetelestai. That is, there, there's a unique way in which it was written. Uh, verb tenses in Bible languages are very different from our English sometimes, and we have to translate in a certain way. But this particular word, tetelestai, paid in full, is written in the tense that indicates both it was complete at a point in time with continuing results. It happened at a point in time and it was complete, it was paid in full at that time, and it would also continue to be complete, paid in full, finished for the rest of history. One payment. There is no more penalty left to be paid for sin. God was satisfied with that payment. Jesus was a perfect sacrifice. There was no other way for the door to be opened for us to have a relationship with God than for Jesus, the perfect sacrifice, the Son of God, to die on the cross and pay that debt, pay that sin. So by faith in Christ, I'm born again. When I look to Christ on that cross in the ministry of the cross and know that he paid my debt, then I am made alive in my spirit. I'm born again. The Holy Spirit takes up residence in my spirit and my spirit is resurrected. It is changed from death to life. So I've experienced resurrection in my spirit when the Holy Spirit takes up that residence. I am being transformed from being in Adam to being in Christ. When that happens at that moment of time, I'm taken out of Adam and placed into Christ. That means that when I become alive in my spirit, I change. I have been transformed, metamorphosized. And so when, I, when that happens to me, then I can hear his voice. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. And so things begin to happen. I begin to hear things from God. I begin to be able to commune with him. And I can, uh, I can, can understand how my spirit smarts. It hurts um, when, um, when I sin because sin is out of character for a believer. And so once that Holy Spirit is alive in my spirit and I am involved in sin or I'm exposed to sin, my spirit's going, mm, ouch, no because it's not in accordance with the holiness of God. God's people, because His Holy Spirit lives in us, love righteousness. We love righteousness and we hate sin. Righteousness honors God, sin mocks God. So all kinds of things change in me when my spirit becomes alive and all of a sudden when He comes in, I am truly alive because I'm no longer just body and soul. Now I am body, soul, and spirit the way God created us to be. So when that happens to us, we're looking forward to eternity in heaven with God. We're looking forward to that holy place where there's no sin. And we know that we will be with God in a place where He is there and His ways permeate the place forever and ever and ever.
So I look forward to spending eternity with other believers, other loved ones who were believers who were there. I will know them. I will be with them. Uh, all of those people are there who are, who are in heaven are my family in Christ. So we look forward to that. And we look forward to resurrection, which is where we're talking about in 1 Corinthians 15 and where we are this morning. So if you will look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, I'm going to begin reading in verse 20 and I'm going to read through verse 28. But now has Christ been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep or those who died. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For is, as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, after that those who are Christ's at his coming. Then comes the end. When he delivers up the kingdom to God and to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death, for he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is expect, accepted that he, God, is accepted who put all things in subjection to Christ. And when all things are subjected to him, to Christ, then the Son himself, Christ himself, also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, that God may be all in all. So God's not going to be subjected to Jesus. Jesus will continue to subject himself to God the Father. Now, let's unpack that. Are you ready? These few verses give us God's redemptive plan, God's whole panorama of redemption through history all the way to its consummation. We have discussed Christ, the first fruits of those who are asleep. He was the first one to be resurrected, never to die again. His resurrection as the first fruits is the guarantee that the full resurrection harvest is yet to come. It will come in the future. It is a guarantee for the resurrection of all believers. The resurrection of Christ is the foundation of our resurrection. All who put their trust in Christ possess his resurrection life. That's his spirit in us. Resurrection life is already present in us. Now, verse 22 says, as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. Then verse 23, but each in his own order. Now that is a mouthful. That is a mouthful. All resurrection won't happen all at one time. There is a sequence, a process. And verses 23, 28 cover a long period of history. I'm going to try to show you what that is 
in these few minutes that we have. To get all of the information, we have to go to the whole counsel of God's Word. That means that we have to pull out of places like the book of Daniel and Matthew 24 and 1 Corinthians 15 and Peter and the book of Revelation, especially chapters 19 and 20. And so we pull all of that together to know what the order of the resurrection is. We know that Christ was first. We've got that part. We've got that. Christ was first. But here in verse 23, he says that next will be those who are Christ's at his coming. Now that makes us have to look at a panorama of future history. We covered this in detail when we studied together the book of Revelation. So I'm hoping you will remember some of that as we go through this. But for now, we're just going to look at this in outline form. So number one, the first resurrection is Christ's resurrection. He is a, his is a resurrection to eternal life, never to die again. That is the character of our resurrection. We will be raised never to die again. Having already been raised in our spirits, our spirits will never be dead again. That's part of the work of the Holy Spirit in us. But Christ rose bodily. He rose literally in a glorified form. And we can expect the same thing for all believers throughout history. So the next group, the next bunch to be raised will be those who are Christ's at his coming. Now, Christ is coming back. There is more than one coming, which I'm about to show you, but he's coming back. And this is a huge subject, and Scripture has a whole lot to say about it. So the next time he comes back, the next thing on God's calendar is the rapture of the church. So if you will turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning in verse 13. This is the second resurrection. Number one is Christ. Number two, what does he say? 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13. Paul is writing and he says, We do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep or those who have died, that you may not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. He's not saying don't grieve. He's saying you grieve with hope. Other people grieve without hope. You don't need to grieve like those who have no hope. Verse 14, for if we believe that Jesus died, or that word if can also be translated since. So we're going to say for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord shall not precede those who have fallen asleep, those who have died. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with a command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then 
we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together. That's where we get the word raptured. We who are alive and remain shall be caught up together, raptured with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. I like verse 18. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. So the next time he comes back will be at the rapture of the church. We don't need any signs for the rapture. He will just show up one day in the air. Now, here's what we get from this. The Lord appears in the air. The bodies of the dead in Christ will rise. He, to be absent from the body, is to be present with the Lord. So the spirits, there is no soul sleep in Scripture. So we don't, no soul sleep. So your spirit, when you die, goes somewhere. All right, so when, when we die, when a believer dies, that spirit is immediately present with the Lord. But the body is asleep. And so he says at the rapture of the church, the bodies of the dead in Christ will rise. He brings their spirits with him and puts them back together. He recreates that body into a glorious body, a recreated body, and they go back together. So there will be those of us on earth. There will be some people on earth, maybe us, still in our physical bodies when he comes. We're still here and we will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So Jesus appears, brings the spirits of those who have died with him, raises the body out of the ground, puts it back together, takes those who are believers on earth up into the clouds with him and we gather to meet the Lord in the air. Notice that there's no judgment, no wrath, no condemnation, no punishment because then he is not coming in judgment. He is coming to take the church out of the world, to take it home with him. This group is made up of believers who have come to saving faith from Pentecost to rapture. Why? Because that's the church age. The church was born at Pentecost. So the church exists from Pentecost to the rapture. Then the church is taken from the earth and the next thing that happens is the tribulation. This is an unimaginably horrible seven years. Um, the world will be ruled by an evil system. We read about it in Revelation chapter 18. In Revelation 19, we see the Lord coming to earth to bring an end to this dark and disastrous period. The Antichrist has been the world's dictator. The time begins, the first three and a half years of the tribulation, you'll remember from our earlier studies, those first three and a half years begin with a false peace, with people thinking, oh, this is great, this is utopia. But then, all of a sudden, things change. And it is all a part of the big lie of that period. We know that Satan is a liar, a deceiver, and that's part of what's taking place here. And so in the middle of those seven years, the floodgates of war are going to open up and it will be a God-rejecting and blaspheming world. 
God's judgment will fall suddenly and swiftly. And we saw all of the things in the book of Revelation that are going to happen during the tribulation time. One disaster after another is going to fall on the earth. Uh, armies will march toward Israel. There will be the war of Armageddon. And blood will flow, Scripture tells us, to about four feet deep. That's bad stuff. And then into this horrible, destructive chaos, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords comes. Not just in the air this time. Comes to touch down on earth, comes to the Mount of Olives. It will split. And during the time of the tribulation, the world is going on. It is a miserable, evil world. But during that tribulation, people will be people. They will get married. They will have children. They will die. And some will be saved. So during that time, um, those believers during the tribulation who die will be raised at the end of the tribulation. That's the resurrection the tribulation saints. Also, we see in the book of Daniel that the Old Testament saints will be raised at that time. So we're seeing the process, the procedure of all of the resurrections that that little phrase in 1 Corinthians 15 is referring to. The church, the tribulation saints, and the Old Testament saints will rule and reign on this earth with Christ for a thousand years. So Christ comes, raises the tribulation saints, raises the Old Testament saints. How do the Old Testament saints get saved? Same way we get saved, by faith. Abraham's faith. God declared him righteous because of his faith. So Old Testament saints were saved by faith, just like we're saved by faith. And so they're going, Old Testament saints, tribulation saints are going to be raised. The church has already been raised. And all of a sudden, all of us are going to be here to rule and reign with Christ on this earth for a thousand years. It will be a thousand year reign of peace. That is an incredible time to think about. And we could spend lots of time digging through scripture to see what that millennial kingdom is going to be like. Um, we're, I'm going to go walk around on the South Pole, maybe the North Pole. Uh, we're going to be able to travel. Uh, it will be a time of peace. Um, scripture tells us that Jesus will rule the world from the throne of David with a rod of iron. Now, what that means is he's going to keep everything in order. But here's what I want to tell you. There still will be rebellion in hearts because in the millennium, people are still going to be going on with life. It'll be a strange time because it will be a world with glorified bodies and Still physical bodies. That happened when Jesus was raised. He walked around the earth in his glorified body with people who had unglorified bodies. And so millennium's going to be like that. But those people who have physical bodies, there will be some who were born, there will be some who will die. And so there will be rebellion in the hearts of some people because why? Because we're born dead in our spirits. They're still born in sin. And so um, during that time, during that thousand years, Satan is going to be bound. God will 
bind him for that period of thousand years. So he's not here to mess with us. He's not here to deceive us. So all kinds of things, it's a fascinating time to consider. But what scripture says is after Christ's resurrection, after the resurrection of the church at the rapture, after the resurrection of Old Testament saints and tribulation saints at the end of tribulation, he says this is the first resurrection. So the first resurrection has um, parts, okay? Christ, the church, tribulation saints, Old Testament saints. So there are four parts to the first resurrection. The first resurrection began with Christ. It's followed by the resurrection of the saints at the rapture of the church. And at the end of the great tribulation is the resurrection of the tribulation saints and the Old Testament saints. You can read about that in Daniel chapter 12. All of us, the church, the tribulation saints, the Old Testament saints will rule and reign on this earth with Christ. Let me just summarize that by saying there'll be no fear. There will be prosperity, purity, holiness, health, and joy. Well, what happens at the end of the thousand years? Well, for a short period of time, Satan is released. Satan is released and is allowed to wreak havoc one more time. And don't think that when he's given an opportunity, he won't do it. So he will wreak havoc one more time. And so some of those who have been born and lived in the millennium are going to choose to join Satan in his rebellion. We can shake our heads at that. I don't know that the heart is desperately wicked. Who can know it? Uh, but, but that's going to happen. <clears throat> and so we find that in Revelation chapter 20 and verse 9. Maybe I'll just go there for a second. Revelation chapter 20 and verse 9. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, and fire came down from heaven and devoured them. What that tells us is what God's going to do after that short period of time. So even in this ideal environment... Hearts are going to rebel, and those who follow Satan are going to join him to march against Jerusalem one more time. And when they do it, the battle doesn't last long because fire comes down from heaven and devours them. Man's rebellion is over. There is no more rebellion. Nothing remains now but final judgment. And so in Revelation chapter 20, verse 11, he says, And I saw, John is having this vision, God's showing him things, and, and he says, I, John, saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. That is a judgment throne. And now God's going to sit on that throne as a judge in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the great white throne judgment. This is judgment of unbelievers. This is the judgment of unbelievers. Um, 
These are unrepentant sinners. These were people who had an opportunity to accept the payment that Christ made for us, but they didn't want it. So instead, they've rejected Christ's payment for their sins, and so they're going to have to pay their own sin debt. The debt's got to be paid because of the holiness of God. I can accept the fact that Christ paid my debt, or I can pay my own debt. Christ died for me, and I don't have to die again, or I can die for myself and be dead forever, separated from God forever. So what's going to happen when all these unbelievers stand before the great white throne judgment, they're going to be found to be sinners, and they'll be sentenced to death in the lake of fire. In rejecting God's salvation, they choose the hell that was created for Satan and his angels. They want to be there. They want to be there with them, and God says, okay. God doesn't send anybody to hell. God has given the whole world the opportunity to receive his payment, but if you don't want it, you don't have to take it. And when you choose to pay your own sin debt, that's where you wind up spending eternity with the devil and his angels. Scripture says this is the second death. This is the second death. And when that happens, when that happens, death is finally removed. There is no more death. That's the end of death. Now go back with me now to 1 Corinthians 15, and let me read this again and see if you can get a different perspective about these verses. Back to 1 Corinthians 15, verse 24. Then comes the end when he delivers up the kingdom to God and Father, to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and authority and power. What did Jesus just done here? He's abolished all rule and authority and power. For he, Jesus, must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. That's a graphic term. Back in the old days, a king would sit up on a throne so that all the people who were subservient to him would be down low under his feet. That's the picture here. So Jesus is going to reign from that throne and all of his enemies will be under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. For he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that God is accepted. God the Father is made an exception who put all things in subjection to Christ. And when all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself also will be subjected to God the Father who subjected all things to him that God may be all in all. The end. This is the design of history. This is the consummation, the completion of the goal that God had for the earth. Christ's final act will be to permanently conquer 
every enemy of God. That's what he's going to be busy doing. Since paid in full, he is working in the world. He is going to work through the tribulation. He will work through the millennium. It's going to take all that time and every contending rule and authority and power that has raised itself up against God, Christ will destroy. He will defeat it. They will never again oppose God or deceive or mislead or threaten God's people or corrupt his creation. That is what Satan has been doing since the Garden of Eden. He deceived, creation became corrupted, and ever since then, he has been deceiving and misleading God's people because he wants God's worship. So when Christ has accomplished that and they're all done, then Christ turns the world over to his Father. This has worked out over that period of over a thousand years. How long? Christ will take back to himself the earth that he created and that is rightfully his. See, here's what, what, what happened. Christ created the word earth. He was present creation, scripture tells us. The earth was his and Satan usurped it. He used Adam. And when Adam cooperated with Satan in usurping the earth, then God's been dealing with it ever since. Understand, hear me, the devil is not in hell today. You know where he is? Right here. He is on earth. The scripture tells us he is prince of this world. He is prince of the power of the air. Why do we have all this terrible stuff happening in the world? Not because of God. It's because that is Satan's program, to steal, to kill, and to destroy. That's his program. And so turn with me to Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5. And I want to read the whole chapter. It's not long. This is exciting. This is a picture. And I, John, saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne, a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. It was a scroll. It had seals on it. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or in earth or under the earth was able to open the book or even look into it. And I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. As one of the elders said to me, stop weeping, John. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the scroll and its seven seals. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he came 
and he took it out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, having each one a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang they sang a new song saying, Worthy art thou to take the book and to break its seals, for thou wast slain and didst purchase for God with thy blood men from every tribe. What do you purchase with his blood? People from every tribe and tongue and people and nations. And thou hast made them to be a kingdom of priests, us, to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. And I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessings. And every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them, I heard saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures just kept on saying, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. You know what that scroll was? Is It's the title deed to the earth. And so here is the earth that has been usurped by Satan. But the deed to it has been in heaven. And the lamb stands and he goes and he takes that title deed to the earth. And he takes it back from the usurper Satan and he gives it back to his father. The victory was won at Calvary. With the death and resurrection of Christ, the victory was in the books. But the victory is not consummated until Christ goes all through this history, reclaims it, and gives it back to his Father. Peter says the millennial kingdom ends when the elements melt with fervent heat. The universe is going to implode. We've talked about creating. What's going to happen is everything he created is going to be uncreated. The universe implodes. It is in its place now is going to be a new heaven and a new earth that is not scarred and marred by the fall. That no longer has that element of sin. And the kingdom will be all resurrected believers, all believers of all time for all of history will be the kingdom the redeemed of all of the ages, the church, the Old Testament saints, the tribulation saints, the millennial saints, all raised, all in heaven forever. When God created man, he made him perfect. 
Adam was made righteous and good, alive in his spirit, in his spirit, subservient. At the fall, all creation was corrupted and ruined. God gave man paradise and he lost it. I think if we ever want to know what future paradise is going to look like, we can get lots of hints from the Garden of Eden before the fall. God restores paradise. And in the end, it will be as it was in the beginning and as God really intended for it to always be. Believers in Christ will be there. No matter what age, what history they lived in, no matter what, faith in Christ and Christ alone ensures that you will be there. It's far more than anything I can imagine. That's why we have to meditate and dwell on this a lot. But there's much more to come, and we'll start right there next week. Call me if you need me.